All right, well, tonight, uh, tonight's message is going to be a bit different, hopefully helpful, and hopefully interesting. That is what I'm crossing my fingers on. I mentioned this morning, uh, as we were preaching through Mark chapter 16, uh, the, the issue with the, the note that some of you might have in your Bibles about the older, older manuscripts in excluding certain verses uh, or including them. And I raised the question, well, that, seems, that can be an alarming thing when you look at something in your Bible and you think, whoa, what, is this supposed to be there or not? And so I thought it'd be appropriate for us to take some time, some special time uh, to work through this and for you just to kind of understand the, the process of how we got our Bibles, and hopefully by the end of it, have some, some confidence, increased confidence that we have the Word of God given to us. Um, so I know that nothing gets you more in the Christmas spirit than talking about New Testament manuscripts and textual <laughs> criticism and things like that. Um, I'll try to be as jolly and festive as I can as I go through this, all right? But uh, what we're going to do tonight is, is ask a couple questions uh, that I think are very important for us as believers to ask and answer for ourselves. How did God preserve his word through the centuries? And building on that, how should we handle discrepancies or differences that appear between the manuscripts that we have? In God's sovereignty and in his goodness, he has given us his inspired word. And I want to begin this time tonight, which will be less preaching from the Bible as it is teaching about the Bible. And so I want to give that disclaimer at the beginning, but we will look at some scripture passages to begin. I want us to begin with the foundation of what we have in scripture. The doctrine of inspiration, which we should unequivocally and boldly hold to as Christians, is that when the authors wrote scripture, when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, when Paul wrote his epistles, their words were divinely inspired by God and as a result were inerrant and authoritative. They were inspired word of God. We see this told us, taught to us in two main passages of scripture, kind of the, the, the capstone passages that describe um, the inspiration of scripture. 2 Timothy 3:16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The scripture is breathed out. It is inspired. It is the word of God. And it's profitable for anything we need for life and godliness, which means the scripture is sufficient. God gave us everything we need in scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21 says that, he was, uh, that, that, that uh, in time past, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we lay a groundwork for this discussion, I want us to begin with this foundational principle of the doctrine of inspiration, that God inspired a perfect scripture. But the doctrine of inspiration is different than the doctrine of of preservation. Both are incredibly important and necessary for us to understand, but they are different doctrines. They are different teachings. The, the doctrine of inspiration is in reference to the original writing, that God inspired the original writers as they were transcribing, that they were writing the words of God. But in his sovereignty and in his goodness, God has also preserved his word throughout centuries. One miraculous thing about scripture is that we have a united book Old and New Testament that is written a span of thousands of years by many different authors in many different contexts, and yet it's a unified message 
and it is accurate and it is inerrant, it is, when you just look at it at the face of it, it is a miraculous preservation of the word of God. Inspiration extends to the original writings, not the copyists. In other words, the cop- those who copied scripture were not inspired by God in the way that the original authors, Paul and, 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 and Mark and Matthew were inspired by God. And it's important for us to understand how did we get our Bibles that we have today? You know, the God, God did not drop in our laps a bound and completed uh, Bible with nice black leather and a, and a, and a couple bookmarks in there. That's not how we got the Bible, right? God, we've, we've, we've even mentioned on Wednesday the topic of progressive revelation that God through centuries and through time gave his word, revealed his word to his people and in his sovereignty that word was preserved and written down and accepted by believers as it was written. And now as New Testament Christians we have the entirety, we have the complete revelation, the complete word of God, but God did not just drop in our laps a finished and bound book. God providentially oversaw the preservation of his word as it was copied from generation to generation. And here's the incredible thing, that there's more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other historical book, and it's not even close. Oftentimes we think, how could God preserve his word so so clearly, so perfectly throughout so many years? When you look at the evidence of the manuscripts that we have, it is astounding. Maybe some of you have seen charts like this, but I want to show you a chart that goes, that, that, that lays this out. As we look at many of the other uh, historical documents that we have, that we look at as, as historical do- documents, look at the differences of these documents. Ju- uh, Julius Sealer's Gaelic Wars, the original writing was 58 to 50 BC. We have 10 copies in existence, and the earliest copies is 900 years after that. The Roman history of Livy, 59 BC, or to, ranging from then to AD 17, we have 27 copies. The oldest we have is 350 to 400 years after the original. Uh, Tacitus's Annals and Histories, 110 AD, three copies of that, 1,000 years after the original is our oldest copy. But look at the Greek New Testament. Written in a span of AD 44 to AD 96, we have over 5,700 copies, uh, portions of New Testament manuscripts in existence today, and the earliest are less than 100 years after the original. Now that is miraculous. When I look at that, I see God's sovereign providence in preserving his word. And so I want to begin by giving the sense of confidence we have God's word today. And we are blessed with an overabundance of confidence by what he has preserved. But having said that, there are some differences. There are some disagreements that Christians have regarding this issue, and in connecting it to the Gospel of Mark that we read this morning, the, the, the ending, the last verses, verses 9 through 20, there are Christians that say that should be there. There's Christians that say that shouldn't be there. And so what I want to do tonight is walk through the argument of why Christians fall on different sides of that argument and, uh, and help guide you through that thinking for yourself. There are two approaches to manuscript evidence. When you look at those over 5,700 copies in existence, there are two main approaches. And one note, these two approaches are limited to the New Testament, not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is is accepted by, by the source, the manuscripts, the Hebrew that we have our English versions based on, is accepted by, by, by 
all Orthodox Christians. Um, it's, it, was, it was very meticulously transcribed by rabbis throughout the years. And uh, so the conversation we're having tonight is strictly in the New Testament. Different families of manuscripts arise over time, in part, due in part to geography or where they are found. And this, this gives rise to two major views representing two text groups um, in New Testament uh, manuscript study. The first one is called the majority text view. How, how many have heard of the term majority text? All right. Most of the Greek manuscripts discovered, out of the thousands that we have, many of the Greek manuscripts were discovered more in the Eastern Europe region where the Orthodox Church was centered. And since Eastern Europe spoke Greek more than a thousand years longer than Western Europe, if you know your church history, there's a time when church history split and then there's the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Eastern Europe spoke Greek more than a thousand years longer than Western, uh, Western Church did. And so we have a whole lot more manuscripts in Eastern Europe. And these manuscripts enjoy a great deal of similarity to each other. This is the majority text that this group, this group, the family of, of manuscripts enjoy a great uh, level of similarity. The majority text view gives weight to the number of manuscripts we have. So we look at all the manuscripts, and there's a family, the majority text family of manuscripts that share a, common, a commonality, a common origin. And so the majority text view says, this has the most, therefore it is preferred. The most widespread of what we have is preferred. And this makes some sense. It would become the text, it would, it would, through the history, it would become the text family that most churches would use because it was so widespread. You might have heard the term the received text. And what does that mean? Well, it was the, church that, it was the, the text that was received by the churches. One could make the argument that God preserved his word by multiplying the manuscripts to make them a majority, that he preserved his word through the majority text. And so that's one view, that not all of the manuscript evidence we have should be consulted as part of our New Testament scholarship. We need to stick to the majority text view, this subsection, if you will, of all the manuscripts we have, that is the majority text view. Now you may ask, well, which English versions um, take their translation from the majority text? This is a bit of a trick question. None of them, all right? Now, there, I think there's one or two that, that might be based on it, the closest we have is the King James, which is based on the Textus Receptus. How many of you heard of the term Textus Receptus before? Textus Receptus is what we could say is probably the best representative of the majority text family. But these two are not synonymous. The Textus Receptus is not the same as the majority text. A man named Erasmus used about six or seven majority text manuscripts to form the Textus Receptus. But what he had at the time was these six to seven manuscripts. This is a long time ago, before we have much of the manuscript evidence we have now. He used about six or seven of these to form the Textus Receptus, but he also would use the Latin translation of scripture where he had Greek missing. He'd go to the Latin and he would back translate from Latin into Greek to fill in those gaps. And as such, there are a few readings in the Textus Receptus that aren't found in any majority text Greek manuscripts. So they're not the same, but it is the best representative of the majority text. After Erasmus, there was a number of additional revisions and additions by men like Stephanus and Biza. And, uh, and then through that, 1611, we have uh, the King James based on that Textus 
Receptus. So that being said, the King James, and, and I believe also the New King James, although some King James preferred individuals debate that the New King James is a, a faithful representation of the Textus Receptus, I believe it is. But that being said, the King James is based on the Textus Receptus and is the best English representation of the majority text family manuscript. So if someone says, I'm a majority text person, they'll most often be a King James person because that's just the best representation we have of the majority text. Does that all make sense? Okay. I'm sorry. We're gonna, we're gonna make it through this. The next view is the critical text. The critical text is a compilation of, of all of the manuscript evidence we have, at least the reliable manuscript evidence that we have. And it was first compiled by two scholars named Westcott and Hort, and had a special focus on two particular fourth century manuscripts called Codex Vaticanus, which is found in the Vatican Library, and Codex Sinaiticus, found in a monastery on Mount Sinai. And as new manuscripts have been discovered through the years, the critical text has been revised and, 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 and worked through, and now the Nessel-Aland text is the one most commonly used. Now, which English versions are based on the critical text? Well, this would be basically the text on, uh, as the basis for all modern versions, uh, ESV, NASB, NIV, etc. So, here's the approach for the critical text. While the majority text places greatest emphasis on the number of manuscripts and its reception amongst the churches, that's majority, the critical text considers all manuscripts and all factors, majority, age, location, difficulty of reading, and which text best explains another text. Maybe an illustration would help uh, walk through this very dense topic. Let, let's say that I task all of you with copying my sermon notes, all right? And I pick two people to start, all right? Let's say I pick Ron and I pick Mike, all right? You copy my notes, and then I tell you, I want you to find three more people to copy your copy. And then those three people will each find three more people to copy their copy of your copy of my copy, all right? Now, let's say that Ron makes it to three-fourths of the congregation. He is fast, man. He's whipping them out, and he's getting more people, and they're fast. And by the time Ron has done, his copy has made it to three-fourths of the congregation. Let's say it's this section, this section, and this section, all right? And Mike is just slow, all right? He takes a little <laughs> bit longer, all right? And let's say he makes it to this section over here, all right? So the majority text view and this is to put it simplistically, this is a simplistic illustration, a majority text view would say that the copies deriving from Ron are the most accurate because there are more of them. It is a majority text view. The critical text view would say, no, that's not enough because no matter how many copies there are, they're similar because of their source, right? So because they came from the one person, those copyists of his copy could copy his copies who would copy their copies, their copies, their copies. So there's a similarity between the source, Ron, because it came from him. So the critical text view would say, majority isn't enough because it all came kind of from the same source, same area. And so the critical text view would say, there are other factors to think about. Right? Perhaps I'd say, I want to go see the copies of the second round people. So let's say Mike copies, and then he gives his copy to Justin, and Justin's supposed to copy his copy. Actually, no, you're in the wrong section. You're in the majority text section. Uh, <laughs> Al, Pastor Al. All right, so he, he gives his copy to Pastor Al, and Pastor Al does his copy. A critical text view would say, no, I, since Al was second in line 
earliest to the original, I want to check his copy because there's less chance of error because of the closeness to the original. All right? So uh, the critical text view would factor in age as an important factor. Those manuscripts that date closest to the time of the original writing, while not perfect, should be given some more weight, even though, although that is not sufficient. For example, if you find a manuscript that dates to 200 AD, that's far closer to the original writings than a manuscript dating to, let's say, the 1300s or the 1400s, which means less time for error. So most manuscripts represent, and, and most, many of the manuscripts represented by majority text have a later date. But age isn't the only factor. All manuscripts are weighed, connections are drawn, and you start to see where a mistake might have popped up by tracing the lineage of manuscripts, and this is called textual criticism. All right, that's what the practice is called. Another illustration. Let's say you were given four Greek manuscripts, and each one of them uh, copied from earlier ones. Three of the four have this reading in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. You're reading 1 Thessalonians 2.7. This is an actual variant in New Testament manuscripts, okay? So I'm giving you an actual ex example. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, let's say three of the four manuscripts you're looking says this, but we were horses among you, like nursing mother taking care of her own children. And you think, that's a strange illustration. It's kind of insulting, all right? And then you look at the, third, the fourth manuscript, and it says, we were gentle among you, like nursing mother takes care of her own children. Now you look at those two, and what do you conclude? Well, I mean, gentle makes a little bit more sense. Um, and then when you look at the Greek, you see that the Greek word for gentle is epioi, and the Greek word for horse is hippoi. All right? So now it starts to make sense. Okay, so what's happening is, a transcribist, a copyist, misspelled a Greek word based off a of similarity, accidentally wrote horse instead of gentle. We've all done that, right? In writing, in transcribing, and copying. Now, again, this is an overly simplistic view. If you took just a simple majority text view, you'd say, well, three of the four said horses, not gentle, horses are correct. That's not what the majority text would say. It's very simplistic, but just to use it in this illustration, that majority itself isn't enough. You walk through the critical um, uh, the textual criticism process, which every scholar and translator does. No matter whether you're majority text or critical text, everyone uh, practices uh, textual criticism, including the editors of the King James. Any English translation, any translation at all, does this practice. It's the practice of pinpointing where the mistake occurs. In short, the critical text approach takes all the available and most reliable manuscripts considering different factors like number, age, location, difficulty of reading, etc., rather than limiting to one specific uh, textual tradition or family of manuscripts. So instead of saying God has preserved his word through the majority text, God has preserved his word through the entirety of the manuscript evidence that we have, and we take all of those and we put them together and we do textual criticism to see which is the most accurate and faithful reading to the original. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So you ask, Aaron, where are you? Why'd you have to ask that question? Um, this is, I'll just show you my view. This is from my 
uh, my personal doctrinal statement. This is what uh, I have written down. I say that the, an accurate and reliable translation of the Bible should not be limited to one exclusive textual tradition, but on an eclectic cross-section of the most reliable manuscripts that are available. And a profitable and effective translation should be in the modern vernacular of the day without compromising accuracy for the sake of clarity. In other words, I would hold to more of a critical text view than a majority text view. That being said, majority text view has points. If, if someone is a majority text preferred person, I have no issues with that at all. There's some good reasons to be a majority text person. Again, if, you, if the claim is God has preserved his word through the majority throughout the centuries and most of the churches use this particular text type, it makes sense that's where God preserved his word. I see some merit in that argument. Some, some insufficient arguments, I think, that um, don't uh, reach, rise to the level of um, sufficient critique is, number one, reading too much into the origin of the manuscripts. Some people might claim that those manuscripts found in, let's say, Alexandria or in Western Europe are defiled by pagan or Catholic influence and therefore should be discarded. The Eastern Church was the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, but the problem is you can use that same argument against the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, which also holds views that we would consider unscriptural. And so I don't want to put too much, read too much into the origin of a manuscript to, uh, to identify its accuracy without considering other factors. A second, I think, insufficient argument would be reading too much into the personal character of the editors. This is one uh, that I've heard many times, that we should reject the critical text because some unbelievers were involved in its compilation. Right? And so therefore, they have an unsaved bias and that should be discarded. Again, the problem with that is that that same argument could go the other way. Um, Erasmus, the editor of the Texas Receptus, upon which the King James is based, was a Catholic humanist. Right? And so I'm sure most scholars involved in translation had some deficient views. And while we don't want to endorse those views, we can look at their work and consider its merits. I think what helps eliminate these arguments is the fact we don't have to depend on any one individual's personal view of the manuscripts because we can see all the manuscripts we have. Did you know that? They're not hidden. Neither Erasmus nor Westcott and Hort burned their manuscripts after compiling them. We have them. And so one thing that we can do as believers is look at all the manuscript evidence and see what they did. A while back when I was in seminary, we went over to uh, the University of Michigan, boo, but they have a great uh, <laughs> manuscript, they have a great manuscript tradition or a collection. You can go there, and this is a picture that we took while they were there. They brought out all these old manuscripts from the New Testament, and it was awesome. This one right here is called P46. It can, it's part of a larger collection of 86 pages from the New Testament, written by Paul, and it dates to around 150 to 200 AD. Now, th here's the cool thing, that, that Paul wrote Ephesians around 60 AD. This copy that you're looking at right here could be as close as 90 years after the original, which means you could make a convincing case that Paul's original writing was still in existence when this was copied, which is really cool to think about. 
Now, one, I think, in my perspective, deficiency of a majority text view is you would not allow for this manuscript to be included in your evidence for New Testament uh, translation because it's not part of the majority text, even though it's much older. A critical text view would hold to this and say, it's so old, it's well-preserved, we should at least consider it as uh, part of the resource that we have. In fact, you yourself can go to the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, their website, and see photocopies of every manuscript found. They have it all scanned. Here's a scanned image of the one I just showed you from the picture that I took. You can see it all. And this is what I say when we talk about the, the character of the, of the editors, those that compiled the majority text, the critical text. We don't have to guess about what they did or what decisions they made. Every, any other Greek or Hebrew scholar can look at their work and look at their sources and compare to see how faithful they were to the original manuscripts or to the copies of the original manuscripts that they have. So, majority text, critical text, question arises from there. Do we have two different Bibles? Do we have a critical text Bible and a majority text Bible? No, we do not. The vast number of differences between any two manuscripts are so inconsequential that they give zero reason for concern. And this includes differences between the majority text and the critical text. And for this reason, majority text believers, critical text believers can worship God and read the word together in unity. Here's what makes up about 99% of all differences in Greek manuscripts. Spelling errors. Think of a apple versus an apple, right? A skeptic would say, ha ha, discrepancy. And you say, well, no, I mean, obviously one copyist made a, made a spelling error. And you check that box, you move on. Nonsense errors, this is the horse versus gentle idea, where it's very obvious and clear where the mistake was found. And then, synonyms in word order. So where one manuscript uses a different word that means the same thing, or they swap the order of the words. And you look at that, and you're like, really? That's 99% of all differences? Yep. That's how unified, that is how coherent, how preserved God's word is. So you say, well, what about the remaining 1%? There are some tough ones in Scripture, Mark 16 being the most tough one. There's significant differences in, uh, uh, between manuscripts are mentioned in footnotes of modern English Bibles. If you look at your modern English Bible, if there's a major discrepancy, it'll say footnote, some manuscripts say this, right? And you can see all of that. There's nothing hidden. And none of the differences that we find in Scripture alter the doctrine or theology of scripture. We can be confident that we have God's message to us and it has been providentially protected against the regular attacks of the devil. God has providentially preserved his word through the abundance of manuscripts available to us today. You can pick up your King James Version and you have the word of God. You pick up your ESV or your NASB, you have the word of God. Now, none of us have time to learn Greek and scour through manuscripts and compare and contrast them. We just want to know, am I holding the Bible in my hands? That's what we want to know. And I can say unequivocally, yes, 
We have the Bible in our hands. In fact, you have more reason to be confident in the accuracy of the Bible than any other ancient historical document in existence. That being said, someone holding to a majority text position um, is, is a fair position. But rather than looking at all the manuscripts, they look at representative manuscripts as the most accurate text, and there's good reasons to hold to that view. Others hold to a critical text position that we can, should consider all the manuscript evidence, and there's good reasons to hold to that view. So what about the ending of Mark? The ending of Mark is the most difficult difference. When everything else is word order, spelling, the ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, is the most difficult discrepancy. To majority text positions side, the vast majority of manuscripts include verses 9 through 20. And so there's a good reason to say it's, it's included in most of them, far and away. Therefore, it should be accepted. That's a good argument. The oldest manuscripts we have stop at verse 8. And so, for the New Testament scholar, the question arises, were these verses added later, or were they part of the original? And you can't really leave this question unanswered, because both, either way, could be a problem. Because you know what's just as bad as taking away from Scripture? Adding to Scripture. And so, obviously, if we, have a, if we already have a, a majority text view, we're going to approach Mark and say, someone is trying to take away from my Bible. But if you're on the critical text side, you might be more inclined to say, someone added to my Bible. And they're both concerns. So what are the different arguments, very briefly, about the long and short ending? Well, for the long ending, vast majority of manuscripts contain the long ending of Mark. We have some church fathers that reference verses from the long ending of Mark. It still shows up in older manuscripts, which means if it was added, it was added very early on. And so that's the argument why the long ending should be accepted. And there's some very smart people that hold to that view. The short ending, their argument says it should stop at verse 8, because the oldest manuscripts exclude it. And in verses 9 through 20, there's some vocabulary differences, there's some style differences that don't sound like Mark. There's some differences there that just sound a little strange. You might even point to things like handling serpents and drinking poison and things like that that we find in the ending of Mark that might strike you as a little odd. Even, and, and even though some manuscripts do include the long ending, many of those manuscripts include notes in their margin that those verses are not part of the original. In fact, some early church fathers, while some mention the long ending, some church fathers exclude the long ending. And so proponents of the short ending conclude that these verses were added later due to unsatisfactory conclusion of, Mark, of, of verse 8, which talks about the woman being afraid and running away and not saying anything. End of story. And they think, that's really unsatisfactory. That's really abrupt. And so the, the, the short ending proponents say, what it seems to have happened is someone later on took elements from the other Gospels and compiled them and added them to the end to tie a nice bow on the Gospel. An argument for the abrupt ending is the fact that Mark is very abrupt, and he's very to the point, and he often will just end things, you know, kind of halfway through. And so one crowd will shout, you can't take verses out of the Bible, 
while the other crowd shouts you can't add verses to the Bible. And there's convincing arguments for both the long and short endings. There are merits uh, for, for both of those. I personally would hold to, or to the short ending of Mark, but there's merit in the arguments for the long ending. But here's the good news, and this is what I mentioned this morning. Nothing is changed. That if this is the passage that is debated the most, I'm glad it's this one. We find these verses, we're found, the things we find in these verses are found elsewhere in Scripture. So if there had to be a debated section in the New Testament, I'm glad it's this one. Your view on the long or short ending will not change your doctrine one bit. As we go back to the beginning, no historical document comes even close to the level of historical accuracy and, scripture, and manuscript evidence as the New Testament. If you want a fun exercise for yourself, if you want to think, well, critical text versus majority text, how do I know where they differ? All right, that, that's a good question to ask. Like, there's these two text families. How do I know where those differences are? Can someone just show me where the differences are so I can kind of compare and contrast and see where I fall? There's actually a resource for you about that. And it's called the kjvparallelbible.org. And what this is, is it compares the Textus Receptus as translated in the King James. And next to it is a column that includes, that, that shows what the King James would look like if it were translated from the critical text as opposed to the Textus Receptus. And every difference is highlighted for you. This is what the homepage looks like, and this is what they seek to do for you. For those that don't read Greek and Hebrew, which is like everybody, right? This shows you exactly where those differences are. For example, in Ephesians chapter one, here on the left side is the Textus Receptus translated into the King James. On the right side would be if the King James were translated from the critical text as opposed to the Textus Receptus. And as an example, verse one, there you see a difference in its word order, right? Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ. And you can go through every book of the New Testament, every verse, and see how did these two manuscript families differ. And sometimes you'll find more significant differences. Other times, most times, you'll find that they're very inconsequential differences. Sometimes you'll find there are no differences at all. But regardless of where you fall, majority text, critical text, we can be confident that the message we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same message written by the original authors under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we have the Word of God. And there's, there's no reason for us as Christians to sit and scratch our heads and ask ourselves, do we have God's Word? Do we have God's inspired Word? Absolutely we do. God has preserved it miraculously. And we can be thankful to God for his goodness in preserving so many copies of his written revelation to his apostles and to his prophets so that we can be transformed and changed by it today. And I'm done. Whew. All right. <laughs> That's a very basic overview. All right. Basic. Really? Yes. It was, it was basic. Um, if you have more questions... Uh, you know, feel free to ask those. I probably won't have an answer for you because it's, uh, you know, it's, it can be a complicated thing, but I'll do my best. And, uh, and the most important thing is that we as Christians can, can worship in unity together, regardless of if you're, if you're majority or critical text, whichever one, we can worship the same God together uh, for the glory of God. We have the word of God and we can be confident in that. I'm gonna pray for us to conclude and then we do have one item of uh, business, a vote for mission support that I want to present to you 
uh, before we sing our concluding song. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, your word that has been preserved and given to us, that we can look at your word and know that we have your revelation. We thank you so much that we get to read it and be transformed by it and, and walk in it. Keep us in your word, keep us studying it, and keep us living by it.